In a new age world filled with delusions and wish fulfillment by morons in need of attention, renowned experiencers of high strangeness and podcasters Jeffrey Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney received invitations to a tropical paradise getaway called Paratopia. Little did they know, it was the same type of new age spiritual retreat they've been avoiding all their lives. Don't be shy. New Age is an oxymoron. Thought is for CCs. Come on, you can shake it. Yeah. We create our own realities, especially the homeless. Anything goes with Paratopia. <laughs> and welcome. Ah, Jeremy Vaney and Jeffrey Ritzman. It's so good of you to come. Uh, well, the ad said uh, we could take a vacation from ourselves. So I, I and our like... lives do kind of suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. But uh, I'm not married. No, not wives, lives. Oh, I don't get it. Well, just relax and let go of your thoughts and your feelings. Breathe out your inhibitions and breathe in the salty sea. Speak with humidity from a dolphin's blowhole. <laughs> that sounds, uh, nice. Yeah, okay. Paratopia. She has everything but the one thing she is missing. A blowhole? A feel-good radio show about how the universe really works. Seriously, dude? You, you want, like, a science show out here in the desert? Sure, this is a beach. I'm from New York. It's all sand. Not a science show. A show about reality. The truth of what lies beneath all that day-to-day misery. You know, controllable fun, like Paratopia. I don't think there's a matrix of controllable fun underlying... Oh, come, come now. You had me at I don't think. Well, I don't think. There's that phrase again, and it's good. Do not think. Okay, look, uh, we didn't come here to take a vacation from ourselves as talk show hosts only host a talk show. That's not... Even up. I see, I see, yes. Well then, I'll have to pay attention to my dreams a little more closely and manifest the perfect hosts. You do what you want. Anything goes at Paratopia! But first, join me in a drink, will you? Will you, Jeremy Vaney? Yeah, I guess so. Will you, Jeffrey Ritzman? Yeah, what the hell, I like beverages. Then it is settled. Here! Grab a drink with a crazy straw and suck on it. Oh my god. I don't feel so... Is your head spinning because everything else is? Jer. Jer. Wake up. Wake up. Jesus, Jeff, I just spit out a crab. Feeling a little crabby today, are we? That's not... Uh, uh, sorry. I mean, that's funny if, you, if I didn't spit out a crab, but when I did, that's actually not yeah. helpful. Well, there's worse. There... Uh, uh, mind telling me where you think we are? Well, uh... We took a vacation... To Paratopia. Right. 
And then that dude gave us some Kool-Aid. Yeah. And then we drank that. Now look. And now... I don't know where we are. I don't know, but I got a bad taste in my mouth. <laughs> you were the one eating <laughs> crab just now. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Jeff, you got the crab, I got seaweed. Do you hear something? You know, I did. Like, I, uh, oh. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like... I don't know if, if you're hearing this or not, because... I feel like I'm just a little woozy, but it's like guitar. It sounds familiar. It sounds like, um, remember, uh, did you ever see that movie Communion? Yeah. Yeah, the Eric Clapton. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it sounds yeah. like, do you hear that? I love that song. Yeah. I do, I do kind of hear it, actually. Now I do. You do? Okay, so that's not just me. No. Uh-uh. I'm hearing it. It sounds like it's getting louder. Yeah. What, what is... You know... I see you. I don't know if I like this or not. I, Holy shit! I, is that someone there? Is that Willie Streber? Are you sure? Jeff, no, that's that's clearly Willie Streber. I mean, he's the best-selling author of Communion, and and he's got Critical Mass coming out in February. And uh, Jeremy, Jeremy, what if what, what what if it's an ambush? No, no, it can't be an ambush. That's Willie Streber. He wrote uh, 2012. Oh, in I'm the telling you, I'm, t- I'm, I'm telling you right now. You're you're in for a big surprise. One very big surprise. Well, we're in for it right now. Hey, Whitley. Whitley, glad glad to see you, man. Well, I'm glad to be here. Cool, so cool that you're here. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about you lately. Oh, hey, Whit. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about you lately. I mean, you know, not... You know what I mean. It's like, um, you know, I've interviewed you a bunch of times, and um, I, I, I've been thinking, you know, anytime I've had the luxury of interviewing you, I, I like to take different angles on things, because you've done a million of these, and I'm sure you've gotten the same sort of questions over and over again. So I think I'm going to take a slightly skewed approach here and just sort of deal with with your writer instinct first before we get into any sort of, you know, esoteric stuff. Because I was thinking about you wrote Communion, then you wrote Transformation, then you wrote Majestic, and then you wrote Billy. Right. And I thought, okay, what Billy is a completely different book. It's about a boy who gets um, abducted essentially by, you know, an evil stalker type guy um now and that's completely different than any of the vampire stuff you've done or any of the horror fiction you've done up till then what was it that you what was so specific about that type of story you needed to tell after three books about aliens well there's nothing in particular i just wanted to get away from the whole alien thing i i had an experience in 1988 that really really Put me off that uh, the alien books, especially the fiction, the non-fiction ones, which was right before my book confirmation was published, which included quite a bit of information about the Air Force and its cover-ups and shoot-downs and whatnot. Uh, a, a magazine, a big magazine called Parade Magazine, published a fallacious article about me, saying that I had discovered that I did indeed have temporal lobe epilepsy and that I had made a big contribution to the Epilepsy Foundation. This was a complete, made-up-from-whole-cloth fabrication. In fact, as I had stated publicly and had printed in my book Transformation, uh, I had very much the opposite experience when I tried to, to get myself tested for temporal lobe epilepsy. Not only did I not have it, I had an exceptionally stable brain, not at all, uh, for they could not induce any epileptic form seizures, even with specialized lights and so forth that really challenged it. 
so and I so I immediately got in touch with Parade Magazine, and the editor I talked to told me that Carlo Vitterini, the publisher, had placed the article himself. And I then found, uh, heard not from this particular editor, but from another person who was involved at the magazine in, in, in putting together the retraction that they published a few weeks later, that Mr. Vitterini had been heavily involved with the United States Air Force. And he implied to me, without saying it, that the article had come from the U.S. Air Force. Presumably, it was a piece of disinformation, totally and completely illegal. And then I went on the confirmation tour. Among the stops I had was a stop at the Pentagon bookstore. I gave a little talk there, and I sat there talking. And there were four or five uniformed Air Force Force personnel in the audience sitting in a row, glaring daggers at me like they wanted to kill me. And frankly, I've never written a piece of nonfiction about this since, and I never intend to. It scared the hell out of me. This is interesting. When you when you write books as an author, you you get into the mindset of the characters that you're doing, and you you, you sort of try to draw them to their logical conclusions. Yes. Um, is there is there anything specifically about horror and about drawing horror topics to their natural conclusions that is conducive to speaking uh, logically and truthfully about this alien phenomenon? Well, I think that the two things are very bound up together in my life. Uh, I struggled for many years to write novels. I wrote for about seven or eight years before I published a novel. I wrote about, oh, at least six or seven novels, maybe more all of them failures. And then suddenly, the Wilson came into my mind. And here were these brilliant, gray, non-human beings with huge eyes, enormously dangerous predators who were skilled at selecting their prey in such a way that the, the rest of the world didn't even know the person was gone. What could be a better description of the abduction experience? Hmm. And I think that's exactly what happened was I found myself passionate about that story because in my unconscious world, this was where I lived. This was what was real in my life. I just couldn't remember it consciously. Mm-hmm. And then comes the next story, The Hunger, uh, which is about a tall, very, very powerful, very controlling, immensely wise, incredibly dangerous, but at the same time winning blonde individuals very much like the ones I later had direct physical contact with in my life. And in in those days, this is buried beneath the surface. Then uh, I stumbled again and uh, uh, began to struggle creatively. And I... The next book that came out was called Black Magic, about uh, uh, mind control and remote viewing and uh, the retargeting of missiles to to in, to to trick Russia and the United States into going into a nuclear war together, and the and the and the and the the, the, the secret unit that was doing this was based in Iran. 
And this was at the same time, unbeknownst to me, that the remote viewing program at SRI, Hal Pudoff and Russ Tark's remote viewing program, was getting into full swing, and I was picking up on it somehow hmm. without the faintest idea of what I was doing. Then comes the night church about a church, a, an evil, dark church hidden within the Catholic church. And then uh, after that, uh, uh, other books, uh, the, there's a lot of unconscious visitor imagery in cat magic. There's really none in War Day. And then it happened to me one, one night in 1985, and I wrote after that came communion. Mm-hmm. So it was a process, my whole creative process was a process of kind of, kind of attempting to, to get at this material under the surface. And then when I was later conscious of my efforts to do that and aware of what I was doing, I wrote the nonfiction books. And then I kept trying and have been ever since trying to walk away from it. It's the last thing I wanted in my life, frankly. I, I, I cursed the day I published Communion. It ruined my life. And I have never lived up to my potential as a writer. I am a uh, purveyor of rejected knowledge. I'm, an, I'm a pariah in the, in, the, in the world of publishing. I hate my life. It's horrible, frankly. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, a, a purveyor of rejected knowledge is usually the person who actually has knowledge. So, you, you got to at least know that much, right? Well, I mean, that means your knowledge is pretty authentic. I think if the masses are rejecting it, what's authentic is that there is something very real in this world that we fundamentally do not understand about what we are and about what the universe around us is. That is absolutely essential to our ability to continue on as a species. I would call that quite fundamental, because if we don't come to grips with this, it's going to eat at us and eat at us and eat at us until finally there's nothing left of this place but the appearance of a place, like a house that has been devoured by termites. Hmm. Well, sort of on that note then, you know, part of the problem Jeff and I uh, both see in all of this or the problem that we have personally with it, maybe you share this too, is that, you know, if people if people don't believe you, that's one thing, and that's, you know, skepticism and, and all of that. And you know where that comes from, you know. It, uh, you, you want reality to reflect how you believe things are, not how they really might be. That I get. But what I have a problem with, and I think Jeff shares this and maybe you, are the people who actually do believe and think they're onto something, but that that's clearly delusional, and then you get lumped in with those people. How have you dealt with that in your own just personal life? I mean, you know, people coming up to you and saying, oh, yes, I've, I've seen the thing that's on the cover of Communion. I have had these experiences, and you know that they haven't. You know, how do you, how, you, you must encounter well, that quite a bit. Usually the people who come up to me have had the experiences. I don't, occasionally I will find some individual who's clearly delusional, but I'm no professional, I can't tell. If somebody says to me that they've had this happen to them, I'll generally take them at face value because I I had no choice but to take myself at face value, even though I thought it was a load of crap, frankly, after it happened to me. I thought I had been, frankly, I thought I'd been drugged, and I thought I knew who had done it, too. And my initial thought was to pursue it as a criminal offense against me. I thought I had been drugged and raped, 
And I thought I knew why. And to be very specific, uh, when I published my book, War Day, uh, the Reagan administration was hot to trot to harden the American manufacturing infrastructure and industrial infrastructure against a limited nuclear war. And they were asking up for a large budget from the Federal Emergency Management for the Federal Emergency Management Administration from Congress to do this. And War Day went through Congress like a house of fire and it killed that bill, killed the whole initiative. Now, I knew Brent Scowcroft at the time to be a vindictive bastard. And when I had my close encounter experience, there was a person there whom I knew, who I knew from college, who had joined the Central Intelligence Agency. And although I didn't put this in the book, and I'll tell you why in a minute, my initial thought was he had been detailed to come after me because I knew that they fooled around with drugs and stuff because of things that had happened I was aware of in college. And uh, uh, they, and I thought they had drugged me and that they had raped me and that, that this man, known to me to be a bastard and known to me to hate me from uh, uh, one of the staffers in Ted Kennedy's office who called me and told me to watch out for him, that he was after my ass. He actually said that you'd better watch your, out for the IRS because I think he's, we think he's going to put the IRS on you. And I thought, no, he didn't. He put the CIA on me instead. <laughs> so um, I knew the guy. I, I was still in touch. I mean, I hadn't talked to the man who was there in a couple of years, in two or three years, but I had his phone number and stuff, and I called him. I couldn't get a hold of him. The line was disconnected. didn't surprise me too much. Got uh, through some mutual friends. I got a hold of his brother, and the first thing that happened to me, uh, immediately after I had been confirmed by my doctor that I had been raped, uh, which I also not only didn't put in the book, I didn't tell my wife for 20 years because it was so humiliating. Uh, uh, I found out my friend, my CIA friend, and that's in quotes, had been dead since the previous March. He was dead when I saw him sitting there with the aliens, supposed aliens. Mm -hmm. So what in the hell happened that night? Then I find that it's totally ordinary in the experience for the dead to show up along with the visitors. I, I'd say good 20% of our letters that we got from people mention it specifically. And it used to happen at my cabin all the time when we had groups of people up there and the little gray aliens were coming. You'd know they were showing up when people started to see their dead friends walking around in the house. I was utterly fantastic. Mm -hmm. So what do you think it was about? Uh, is it really some Buck Rogers aliens from another planet come down here to diddle with us and fool with us genetically? Maybe. Maybe that's part of it. I don't know. But I'll tell you this, there's a big part of it that we do not understand at all. Yeah, well, and that sort of gets to my sort of mantra going into 2009, which is uh, f figure, <laughs> ask, what, ask who is creating the narrative. Because more and more I keep seeing this, uh, you know, there are little gray alien doctors that are here, you know, creating hybrids to take us over, sort of the Hopkins-Jacobs perspective, and having spoken about Hopkins, not really to David Jacobs, but hearing about him, it's clear that, well, Jacobs won't even acknowledge you if you don't conform to that narrative, but Hopkins will leave out as outliers any information, any testimony that is more, quote-unquote, supernatural than that, uh, or, or even just outside of 
that uh, narrative uh, because it's it's not something that makes sense to him. So, you know, but in talking to, again, Jeff and uh, thinking over my own experiences and, and, and in talking to anyone who's an abductee, including Hopkins' own people that he uses in his books, uh, having met them now, you know, we all have these more extraordinary experiences that are part of this so-called abduction phenomenon. Can you speak to that a little bit? I mean, how do you make sense yeah. of the high strangeness? Well, what happened, uh, I don't make sense of it, first of all. However, I can certainly talk about it. I just thought about it a lot. Uh, I, I found out when I was in Bud's group early on that, 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 that this was a feature of it, and this high strangeness and of, of other people's experiences, not only mine. And he just would have none of it. He didn't even want to talk about it. And eventually, of course, my relationship with him deteriorated. And uh, I became the enemy because I wouldn't basically stop talking about it because I'm going to talk about the whole experience as I see it and as it lays itself out to me. And frankly, the more I relaxed into it over the next 10 or 15 years, the stranger it became. Until finally, at the end, it was ultra strange beyond anything I could even conceive and frankly, probably beyond anything I could even write about even now, looking back. Uh, it is tailed off a lot lately. There's only been in the past year, I think, which just it was all actually last December, there was an experience, but there hasn't been anything like it used to be for the first 11 years after I had the community experience. I had a, a whole repertoire of things happen. Now, that said, so did a lot of people who came to my cabin, and a lot of them had this then in their lives for years afterwards as well. And I don't think that we have constructed a narrative of this that makes sense. And one of the enormous problems is that a lot of what happens to individuals, a lot of the experience and the perceptions are so beyond what we have built language around from our life on Earth that we can know we have them. We can know it happened. But, like, as I am literally thinking of things right now, I cannot say this because it is unsayable in the English language and probably in any human language. An extra-temporal experience or a hyper-dimensional experience of some kind is about the best way I could describe it. Uh, I, know, but, um, uh, I know that you were, you were at the, um, the first Star Nations gathering. Right after the I, white I may have been. I have no idea what even you're talking about. But go ahead. No. <laughs> well, I, I was I told you were there. I was. <laughs> uh, for, uh, with standing Elk had put together the Star Nations gathering after the well, white buffalo. David Axelrod, with no memory of what I just said a few weeks ago to Blagojevich or whatever his name is. But go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, well, okay. What, what I was going to ask, um, you know, maybe you picked up some of it there, or you'll just know what I'm talking about. But. Um, you know, the Lakota way of thinking is that there is no such thing as I, me. Uh, so if if they don't have that in their language, if they don't have, you know, sort of the I, you uh, split, and they're in contact, you know, if they are, with uh, these star people, um, is, is that perhaps the type of language that we need to be looking at? So that maybe it's not English that can get at it so much as it's this... Um, this sort of, I don't know, other mindset that, that doesn't have sort of the, the separation of self. You know, maybe we have to adopt well, you know, something like a, that. That's a really brilliant idea, because I think, you, I think you're really on to something there, because uh, 
I've always felt that the Native American take on this was 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 much more sophisticated than what we are able to achieve using this far less, far more temporally uh, uh, disadvantaged, if you will, language. English is an extremely linear language, and the English concept, the uh, uh, European concept of self, is ex is extremely isolated. And what you're looking at here is a, a, a language that may have forms in it that are much more accessible to describing these experiences. It's quite possible, I don't know, because I don't speak the language. Uh, I think also that some of the extraordinarily sophisticated and subtle languages of, of the Brazilian native people of Brazil, for example, who is, whose languages are very grounded outside of, if you could use that word, outside of time, might be better able to describe these experiences than we are as well. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But the inability to describe them means also an inability to understand them and what comes out, for example, of one's mouth is that, you know, the visitors are somehow connected with the dead, but what does that really mean? Does that mean that something happens in your mind when you're with them that conjures up your own memories of your dead and brings them to mysterious life in the context of a close encounter? We don't know the answer. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Jeff because I am being a complete conversation hog. No, 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 please. Um, Whitley, the one thing I wanted to ask you about, and it's something that I've been talking to people both online and off for years, is uh, I know in my own experiences that it seems that when my intent is focused on this subject, uh, almost to the point of obsession, that I seem to get a lot more direct experience, sightings, what have you. And these are not... Uh, sort of like listening for the bump in the night type of thing. These are very in-your-face, very direct experiences that seem to come out of um, the amount of attention paid to the subject. Uh, I recently had a man on my website who's been dying to see something of this phenomena for uh, obviously a very long time. And recently he put a post up on my board saying, I'm out of this. Uh, I've been paying way too much attention to this, and I've had literally four in-your-face sightings in the course of a week. I don't need this in my life. Uh, and that's something that I've talked about with people quite a bit over the years, that if you're not willing to open yourself up to this, it's best not to um, immerse yourself in it. And I'm curious if you've ever found that kind of the more you give, the more you get type of scenario in your own experiences. No, absolutely no question whatsoever about it. That's why my experiences happened. Uh, it may happen because I started going out in the woods and this once I once I had eliminated all the other possibilities, I knew that this was something really, really strange. Early on I thought it might actually be aliens and I suspected my friend who I talked about earlier might even be alive, uh, that he might not be dead. But, but once I wrote communion and I realized that so many people had that same connection, I should have put his put the experience of him in the book too, but I didn't. Mm -hmm. In any case, uh, uh, the more I went out in the woods, the more I challenged myself and my own fears, they came back, they got interested, mm -hmm. and it developed gradually over time into a very much of a long-term relationship that was all centered around meditation. 
And in the last year or so, a man came to started coming to meditate with me almost every night. And I say a man because he was about he was not very large. He was a smallish man. Uh, he wore a little tunic. He was very slight. He smelled human. In fact, quite strongly. He was. Uh, like a person who never bathed. In fact, wherever he came from, that wasn't something they had invented yet, or perhaps it was something they'd given up. <laughs> right. He, he, he used to sometimes sleep in a bed in the, a room down the hall from us, but no matter what we did, no matter how careful we were, we were never able to confront him quite directly. He would come onto the roof and then down through the the, the 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 wood into the room and night after night after night, I Annie finally came into the room one night to be to have this experience because it was quite extraordinary that this was happening and she, she could hear him in the house too. It was the cats were reacting to his presence. It was obviously that there was a third person in the house we could never quite see. And when he hit the roof, a number of others hit the roof too. And she said, "I can't handle this." She got up and left. Right. But, but the last night I was there, when South Park came out with this, the rectal probe shows, and, you know, they, they really made me into a national laughing stock. Right. Uh, and my sales of my books just dropped through the floor. And they've never really recovered. I've just been sort of living in a scratch existence ever since. But they... Um, they, uh, uh, I was bankrupt. I had no more money, and I had to leave the house. We, we had to, we were we were foreclosed long before it became uh, fashionable. And it, we, it, it, the last night I was there, they came. This fellow and is now. I have had so much experience with him, so much communication, and I didn't know whether he would ever come back again or whether he would follow us to the little condo in Texas we went to or anything. And I finally asked him, I said, I know that I cannot have seen you the way you really are because I see a human being, a, a body, and I feel I touch you and it's a body. But that can't be what you are because if you were like me, a body, you wouldn't be jumping through ceilings and things. Right. But so then there was just silence. He used to stand behind me and put his hands on my shoulders. And if I even so much as thought about turning around, the little muscles in my body would start to work. The hands would go away, and he'd be either gone or standing back way across the room, five feet, ten feet away. He would never just confront me directly, never. Anyway, that night, he... I, I, list, I waited for him after I said all of that. Nothing happened. But, well, this is it. This is how it ends. It just, it ends. So I got up and I went to bed. And suddenly, the front yard, I, I saw a lot of light, a lot of light in the front yard. And I thought, oh, good, the house is burning down. Now I'll get the insurance and we won't have to leave. <laughs> that, wasn't, that wasn't the case. I rushed to the windows and this absolutely remarkable event occurred. This light came from the meditation room out into the over the front yard this beautiful like star at eye level though and about the size of a basketball but sending out rays that actually penetrated you like they felt like pins going through my body 
and it, it went, they penetrated me. It felt like somebody kissing me. It was, uh, it, it was it just, an, uh, and I'm right now up against the very linguistic issues that we were talking about a moment ago. I was simply um, overwhelmed by this fantastic mm. intimacy and grandeur of this experience with this person I had been so close to for all of these years and not, never knowing what, that I was actually in the presence of some, some extraordinary being. And there he was, and that, that was it. He disappeared a few seconds later, the light went out, and I left the next morning, and that was it. Unbelievable. So, Whitley, given everything that you've experienced over the years here, um, how would you, I don't know, maybe as an author, I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot as saying what is your definitive take on this, because I know that that changes with information with time, but how would you play this out to its natural conclusion? Where does this go? It's still going. I mean, where does the relationship with these beings go for us? You know, we've got this disclosure movement that says... We want the government to tell us what they know, and then we'll join a galactic federation, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's, it's rejected knowledge. It ain't going to happen. What's really going to happen here is that this planet, you really want to know the truth. Yeah. This has rejected it. This has rejected the, the next step, the step that would have taken us into the cosmos. This species has said no to that. So now we go down. And we will go down and down and down. Uh, whether we will die as a species or not, I don't know. That's not for me to know. But I will tell you this. If you come back here in a thousand years, what you will see is a version of hell that is unlike anything you can now imagine, uh, where it is a combination of extraordinary poverty extraordinary danger and profound intrusion. The species will no longer be as it is now, independent and isolated in the bodies that we are in now. There will have been a whole new ideation of technology that will have at first to our delight and then to our chagrin eliminated the barrier between the individual and the group and the machine. And it, believe me, uh, you know, there have been, I've been on a lot of rides in my experience, including seeing the outcome of different reactions to this on, in other worlds. I won't even get into it. But suffice to say, this is not a place you're going to want to be in not very much more time. A thousand years and this life, as I see it and live it, is nothing. It's a second. And in the next second, mankind is going to curse the day that basically that this, what will become one of history's most reviled institutions, the U.S. Air Force, began to shoot when we touched the edge of heaven and directed us instead into the pit of hell. Well, I guess we should probably leave it there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On that happy note. <laughs> uh, Whitley. I sing, I dance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, a half hour is not enough 
Ted time with you. We need to have you back on. Um, so please, please do come back on. Uh, thank you so much. And give us a little something about your book coming out in February. Give us a taste of that. It's called Critical Mass, and it is about the danger of nuclear terrorism. It is a thriller. And it is also penetrates into the mind of Muslim terrorists in a way that uh, no, can't be done elsewhere. Uh, you will find out how they think and why they think as they do. And will this, uh, are you hoping to have the same effect with this as you did with uh, Coming Global Superstorm? I'm hoping to, yes, because this is a, a terribly, terribly vital and important problem. And one way in which our world unfolds is involves nuclear terrorism, and it's something that we absolutely must prevent. Because I talked a few minutes ago about a thousand years. If that happens, then it's not a thousand years when, when, when that sort of thing begins to unfold with less than a hundred years. It's a horrible disaster. Uh, and when you read the book, you'll see just how vulnerable we really are as a society to being completely dominated by the world's first unseen anonymous government. Our group of terrorists with nuclear capability could rule this planet in a day. Hmm. Well, I can't wait. <laughs> I love yeah. your work. Whether you like your work or not, I love your work. So thank you for... Uh... I love my work. <laughs> I'm, I'm very proud of my work. I think I've done some wonderful things, and I'm, you know, keeping on. Very good. Yeah, and I'm and I'm still looking forward to the re- release of um, Conversations, or no, e- Evenings with Demons. It's out. It's been out for years. But is, is it not being re-released? Maybe I don't have any idea. Yeah, I think I, some guy wrote me something about that. I, huh. I didn't keep up with it. Well, if I can find it, I'm that that's that's been the bane of my existence with you for the last <laughs> like ten years is trying to find this book. But in any event, uh, thank you very much for doing the show. And, yes, uh, thank you very much. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Thanks for being our first guest. Take care. Bye. Hello, Jeff. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm such a bad host that I didn't. No, 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 no. I didn't no, no. give you more. Uh, more. No, questions. that was good. I, I asked the most important thing I wanted to know, and that was good. I was, I was kind of thinking, gee, you don't really want to ask the communion movie questions after. No, <laughs> after no, that. definitely not. Definitely so, not. So anyway, getting back to communion, the movie. Uh, what did you think? <laughs> <laughs> definitely not. Uh, I hate my life. He's so cheery. That was such a whirlwind, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, I think like most writers, he could see the absolute good and the abysmal evil of everything and uh, and everything in between. So it's, it, you know, uh, I, I've heard him speak like that before on a couple of different programs where, uh, and the one thing I, I actually wanted to bring up to him at the end was, you know, uh, he talks about if we ignore what this phenomenon is presenting us with and we ignore uh, the relationship that can be had with it, you know, we get what we get, that kind of thing. Well, my question is, is, is the phenomenon going to allow us to ignore it uh, for much longer? Uh, I think, well, it sounds I think like already, what he's saying you know, is yes, because, because it's, it's rejected knowledge. And so it's not going to be, you know, any sort of great giant disclosure type thing. Well, did we ever think it was going to be a big top down revelation to begin with? I mean, uh, no, well, I, no, some of us do, but, you know, but no, uh, I don't. And um, no, I think what he's saying is, you know, we had we had an option. We had a fork at the road, and we, we chose hell. 
<laughs> we, well, we chose obliteration, and so so no, I think that any sort of um, you know option to I don't know fulfill ourselves as a species is over is what he's saying. Well, we chose we chose wrongly already. I I I don't know that I agree with that as a whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, I get the. I've always had kind of the impression that this will not be ignored. And if you want to talk about a fork in the road, perhaps there's many forks uh, in many roads uh, that that we're going to have. But uh, I don't get the sense. I, I think <laughs> I think we might be a little slow on the uptake, but I think eventually people are going to look at this whole thing in a different way. And I've only become optimistic about that in the past couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think I mentioned on the, the Paracast episode that we were on uh, that uh, that for the first time in a long time I had a a meaningful discussion on AboveTopSecret.com, and uh, and that that showed me right there that there are other people out there who are looking at this in a different way and can talk about it uh, with some sense and, and some. Uh, uh, truly open-minded. I mean, everybody says they're open-minded when we start talking about the ETH, and then you discover, well, they're not really open-minded. They're only as open-minded as to uh, fill their own need to believe. But I think we're actually starting to see maybe the tip of the iceberg of just how many people are out there who who may be willing to look at this in a different way because, after all, the old way is not getting us anywhere. Um and if more people start looking at it differently, who's to say what kind of progress can't be made with that? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm optimistic about it these days. Uh, talk to me next week. It could be something completely different. But. Well, see, and that's, you know, that's actually literally true of, I think, all three of us. Is mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm just throwing that out there because I know that people often accuse Streber of always being, you know, negative and down and or or the opposite, you know, you know, what is what is it Whitley? Are they space brothers or are they demons? You know, it's like no, dude, people's real people's real opinions on things of this great nature change with your mood of the day plus, you know, however you're feeling that day plus um the information that you're receiving or the experiences that you've had and how you feel about them. Right. Lately, you know what I mean. I mean, it, it, it's not a cut yeah. and dry one or the other. And I think anyone that has a cut and dry one or the other is probably delusional. You know, is probably picked a side that is non-existent um, by the fact that it's still an unknown, and so there is no side to pick. There, there's just this thing happening, <laughs> and however you feel about it that day right. uh, is sort of is beside the point. Um, but I wonder, I wonder what it is that he. What is there an event? You know, I wish we'd gotten into. Was there an event? Was there something, some catalyst for the the wrong fork at the road that he sees? I mean, why now has he decided or or figured out or realized or whatever that uh, that it's over for us? Well, don't you think a lot of that is probably how he's been treated as a writer in the uh, not you know in the literary community number one, but also how he's been kind of I don't know somewhat berated and shoved aside even in ufology circles. I mean, how many times do we have to read, well, I saw communion and that didn't look, that was just weird. Uh, well, you know, 
and I stand by the statement that I, that I made to, or that I make to everybody who's seen that movie and says they didn't get anything out of it, or read the book and said they didn't get anything out of it. Is like, well, then you're not getting it. Uh, uh, you know, I, I have to say, I mean, as far as my own stuff goes, that the communion film is probably the closest you're going to get to that weirdness and that hyper reality feeling if you really watch that movie carefully. Yeah, I agree. Um, that is it. And and that's obviously not what people want. They don't want to hear that. That's too far out for them. And I was really glad to hear him bring up Hopkins when it came to uh, having none of the more bizarre aspects out in the public light. I mean, I think that speaks volume as to where we're at in this stuff right now. These are the guys everybody listened to. Hopkins and Jacobs. They built the current thematic of the experience for people who don't have it. So the minute you say, well, I'm an experiencer, immediately you're naked on a table somewhere with probes hanging out of your ass. And that's not it. That's not it. Well, it's and part of it. it. It's, it's a, for me, it's been a, an infinitesimally small part of it. Um, <laughs> for Whitley, it's been part of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, don't get us wrong. We're not saying the little, the tiny doctor creating hybrid scenario isn't true or isn't you know something that people are experiencing we're just saying that's a tiny piece of it there's so much going on that that just is not reported in these books that to to cookie cut that out of the dough uh and say that's it and say that's it is you know you're not doing us any great service no no and and, i mean i think that uh, Whitley is a prime example of someone who's been able to articulate the multi-leveled experience. And everybody wants to know what's really going on. And, and I don't think at this point we really know what exactly is going on. You can theorize the, 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 the alien doctors as much as you want. But I think that that is literally uh, the, the, the top-level surface of what you're seeing or what you're experiencing. And that could be something that is generated more by you uh, and interpreted by the experience than anything that's actually going on in, in quote-unquote reality, whatever that means. Um, you know, I see that as being the absolute top-level surface. And I see a lot of people expose that in themselves and say, yes, I remember something like that happening or something akin to that. And and stop right there. And, and and I say, you know, don't you want to think about that more? Don't you want to uh, uncover a couple more stones in in what you remember and and uh, what may have been said to you or imparted to you or shown to you? And uh, uh, you know, and then it, it usually degrades into well, it was so weird and this, that, and the other. I just kind of blew that off. That's the important part. That's the part you're supposed to look at. Uh, you know, I know, I, I know that uh, years ago when I was working with a research partner, he said, uh, and this was, I think, after uh, this is after a case we had in uh, another state that actually looked very much like what you would think of being demonic. Uh, uh, a lady seeing a an alien at the foot of her bed in a Zorro hat with a knife <laughs> who who summarily raped her uh, as her husband laid next to her in the bed. So you've got stuff like that. And uh, once you learn a little bit more uh, 
about the family, and you see, well, point of the story here is that the husband came in and saw her and her three daughters speaking to my my research partner and I, and he said, you're not going to talk to these guys unless they're willing to give you some money. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I saw him as being the really uh, belligerent, uh, talk down to his wife kind of guy, uh, just in the very little bit of family life that I witnessed there. You could see he was definitely the dominant alpha male type guy. Uh, and And I have to wonder if her mindset of the oppression and the um uh i don't know how else to put it but the 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 being under someone's thumb and being the subservient and uh the victim in in this kind of thing and and a lot of that was conveyed to us as well as that she wasn't particularly happy and so on and so forth did that reflect itself back in the experience is that why she had these horrible horrible experiences like that and um and then, you know, flash forward to last year when we all saw the Dorothy Izot film and how she spoke about, uh, you know, seeing these benevolent beings who she described as men uh, come to her and were very pleasant. And it didn't seem to be an inherently fearful exhibition. Uh, that was until someone in her parish mentioned, well, I think these things are possibly demonic. And then all of a sudden it was demonic. It reflected her own fear back at her. Um, and I remember you talking with Whitley on the 2012 show with culture of contact, where he was talking about a woman who stayed at the cabin and, uh, or a man. And uh, when he saw one of these beings, he freaked out. And then all of a sudden it took on the appearance or its head took on the appearance of a hawk. And him saying, this is not something that they can help. This is not something that they... they and that's, <laughs> that's always been in the back of my head through a lot of experiences is that while I freak out about it, I think I get the... Uh, and the only way I'm going to say it is I get the feeling at the time that although it's terrifying to me, there seems to be this undercurrent of, um, in our native English, of of sort of, oh crap, uh, you know, how do we, how do we, how do we stop doing that, you know, and 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 essentially the the no 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 don't scream no 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 don't scream that kind of, <laughs> you know, it's okay don't, but you can't help but react the way you do, and they can't help but react the way they do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I mean, over the years I've seen this as really being, um, reflections of your fear, reflections of your perceptions and that, and that may be what the entire, um, little doctor's thing boils down to is cultural contamination and, um, uh, whatever they are doing is triggering something in your mind of hospitals and doctors and, uh, well, you know, surgical stuff that that might be, but there's also, you know, my, my experiences as limited as they are. One was being on a table, being stared at by these beings. Now, I guess you could say the cultural contamination uh, there would be if I had then thought doctors, because who stares at you on a table, you know, with like a right. light over your head, except a doctor or a dentist. Right. Um, however, the other. You know, talk about little guys in tunics. Well, I've seen them. I mean, you know, 
Um, he's on the money there. <laughs> right. And they basically did show me a row of humans lying on tables, you know, unconscious, saying, you know, sort of like, this is what we do. You've always wanted to know what an abduction was. Well, this is it. Now, ultimately, I don't remember beyond that, so I don't know what it is they were doing to these people on the tables. Right. Um, but the fact of people lying on tables is there, you know? Like, I did experience that. Right. I haven't jumped to the conclusion, oh, they're doing, you know, operations on them. They're doing procedures on them or anything like that. Right. Um, so have you had experiences like that? Because I'm trying to figure out what exactly it is that you're saying the, the cultural contamination is. The Is it the interpretation of what it means to be lying on a table? Or are you saying that even seeing the person lying on a table or thinking that you are is not actually happening either? Well, I mean, I refer to the big boom in experiencers that came out in the mid-90s to, you know, well, mid-90s, late-80s to mid-90s, where you had everybody and their mother coming on TV talking about their regressive hypnotherapy session, and and I was on a table, and they stuck me with this, and they, you know, I think think invariably that the abduction scenario, quote-unquote, has become ingrained into culture. And I think that once somebody hears or knows – I mean you could ask anybody on the street these days, I think, what do you think an alien abduction is? And I think the vast majority of people would tell you, well, you wake up in a bright light and they float you out the window and you're on a table and they do exams and then you come back and you don't remember anything else. Uh, I think that's become a staple uh, of what people think about this phenomena. And that in turn ingrains itself into popular culture to where uh, – that's all you if, – if this experience, if this enigma does present itself to you, that will be your experience because that's what you expect to see. That's what you expect to have happen. What is really happening is the question. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know I've only had a couple of those things where I'm – one I won't even discuss, but uh, the other I've talked about with uh, – when Lisa and I took the drive up to the country and I wound up on a table someplace very cold um, – but I had my clothes on as far as I can remember and somebody trying to stick something in my eye. And uh, again, I think that boiled down to nothing, but we want you to look at us and acknowledge us as, as real as you are. We are as real as you are. And therefore, then, then came the, the point where the one says to me, do you want to hold my hand? And I said, yes. I don't even know who these people are. But I'm in such a desperate situation that I'm reaching out to any kind of uh, uh, sympathetic, uh, you know, notion thrown in my direction. So that's what it boils down to. I don't, I don't think this. Uh, I, I think there's something multi-leveled underneath of the classic abduction scenario. That if you're willing to say that's not it, and I won't accept that, uh, you will have other experiences that are much more, well, at the same time, they're much more bizarre and terrifying, if you want to call it that, um, that, that, that they're also more laden with some kind of meaning for you. Uh, and mine was all based around my fear. You know, it's interesting. I think something that Teokas and Ghost Horse uh, of the Lakota had said uh, is that... Um, that they see things metaphorically. I think part of what he was driving at is that they 
it's hard to describe, but it's basically, I think it would be this. What if there is a civilization? I mean, metaphors are a higher form of uh, language than just literal surface, you know, text <laughs> and direction uh, and fundamentalist thinking. So what if there are beings that actually operate from that metaphorical point of view? So that somebody like Dr. Sprinkle, who believes that what these beings are doing, kind of like what you're describing, are like sort of plays. They're putting on plays to your expectations and giving you, quote-unquote, what you need um, in these ways that seem abstract and and weird. Um, High strangeness theater. High strangeness theater, but, but it's actually, that is actually how they communicate. That it's not that they're putting on theater necessarily in the way that we would put on theater and and have to think of what things right. mean in terms of metaphor. That's actually f- the point of view from which they function. What do you well, think about that? Then well, how do we think, talk to them? Um, we have to get there, you know? <laughs> um, I think, and I can only speak from my experience uh, in that way, is that they speak visually. It's very visual. And I always thought that, that was because I... I'm a visual guy, you know, doing what I do for a living. That I, that's that's what I do. So I figured that's that was their choice of operation. Apparently, it's not uh, because too many other people have come forth and said, you know, that this is like a visual language. This is much more um, uh, a much more clear and concise way of communicating. And we are not used to that. I don't think we're we're so. Uh, uh, doing what I'm doing right now, trying to think of the right words for the right things. Well, uh, we're, we're used to parable. You know, the Bible, and, or right. any Bible, pick a Bible, is, um, you know, is all about metaphor and all that. But then you have to know what the, the deeper meanings are that they're trying to convey. I mean, there is the human aspect to metaphor where we have to actually get what the fuck it is they're trying to say. Right. Or, well, I guess this is a family show now, so what the bleep they're trying to say. <laughs> uh, you know... So, do you, do you think that that's a, a dilemma that that they are that they acknowledge that that if if they if hmm, if you have a race that speaks in metaphors and visuals, how do they know how to communicate that with us in a way that is meaningful to us? Oh, I guess that's a bastard. rhetorical question. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean I think. Uh, and again, we don't know. We don't know. I, I think that the problem with and, and let's go back again to the operating room and the little doctors. Again, that could be completely contrived by us as a screen for what's going on, but we can't escape the alien. Um, we can't escape the alien. The alien's going to be there. But are we flashing back to birth? Are we flashing back to nightmares of, of uh, you know, uh, I mean, I mean, and really, there is nothing more horrifying to me, at least, uh, than than being operated on by people you don't know what they're doing or, or how clean they are or, you know, <laughs> and you seem to be in this kind of theater. You're kind of in this, um, and it's always felt that way to me. I mean, even from being... Uh, a small child in the bed with the black sheets, which I've described before ad nauseum, uh, that felt like there were uh, hundreds of people around uh, the bed or whatever I was on, 
and they were all watching me. It was this very, I was, I felt the focus of the looks, um, which is why I've never been a big fan of crowds uh, growing up and even now. Uh, but if they're speaking in a, in a visual way, uh, I would think that they would know enough about us to under, to, to know how to do that effectively. Um, but I think in, in, in the only way that I can justify it to, my, to myself about this is that they're trying to make us think more uh, about uh, whatever it is they're trying to communicate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think invariably if you're in this and you, uh, and you have the experience that you're going to come to a different way of thinking. I mean, Jeremy, five, six years ago, I thought this was all demonic. I was dumping it out the window, you know, and, and somehow or another, I've gotten back into it again. Um, not as, not as obsessive as I was before, but certainly as in, you know, actively involved in it as I ever have been. And I, I met you and I met David and I've kind of, I've come to see it in a different way than I used to. Uh, and I started out years ago thinking they must be extraterrestrial. So it's, this, it's been this progression of getting to the point that I am now. And when I think about how I feel about it right now, I feel like I'm on the hot track. Whether I am or not is to be seen. But I don't know what it is, but I feel I've got a better handle on it because of it. Because of thinking of what has happened in years past and analyzing those over and over and over, uh, I start to see that, hey, they're not this. Maybe, you know, this is – and you explained to me about the whole uh, – uh, they're bad. They're, what they're doing is wrong and it's evil and it's uh, this, that, and the other. And you said, well, you know, is it evil or is it, um, you know, that, that we're perceiving something that, that's not seeing either way? They're not they're, – they don't swing either way, good or bad. It's – it's just the way it is, and we perceive it as such because we feel victimized by it. Um, and I think that that's, I, I think that that's what we have to get past: is feeling victimized by it. Because if I'm even the slightest bit in the right direction with my thinking, we have full control over it, and I believe that. Uh, and by the way, if if you're just if you're just hearing us for the first time, we're we're doing a really bad job at our first show here because. We're basically assuming that you know who we are, <laughs> and like, Hi. yeah, who Tiokas and Ghost Horses and all this sort of stuff. These things that we're just sort of talking about here. So, if you want to know more, if you don't know who the hell we are, um, you can find if you just go and search out the podcasts at blog.valians.com. Uh, no www. Just blog.valians.com. Um, I have a bunch of podcasts there. Some of which Jeff is in, some of which Teokasin is in, Streber, etc. Um, so you'll find all the stuff that we're talking about there in terms of you know Jeff saying, well, I've I've talked ad nauseum about this and that. And the other thing, well, you can find it all there. So he doesn't have to talk ad nauseum nauseum about I, it here. I, th- I think at some point, maybe maybe the next show we do, I think we should maybe do um, kind of a recap of who the hell you are and what I am and <laughs> what I am, who I am, and what you are. Uh, and, and, <laughs> well, and, and, yeah, and and kind of you know give new listeners the lowdown on where we stand on all this stuff, and you know, and 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 the battles that we fought since we've known each other. What a uh, a year or or yeah, 
Well, has it been two yet, or just no, just, just a little over a year? Yeah, it was the summer. Um, of uh, so, I mean, uh, I think that I think it would be worth to set the tone of the show to say that we don't think about this what a lot of people do, and um, and I. Well, yeah, because we think, but also, also because we're we've kind of now got the reputation of being uh, uh, difficult uh, on the mainstream ufologists. And, now, this is why I was surprised to hear him say that he takes at face value uh, when most people, you know, tell them their abduction stories. I don't do that. I, I guess maybe I'm not mature enough to do that or, or something. But I, well, I think he meets so many people that it's probably hard to have deep, meaningful conversations with every single one of them. Yeah. So, I mean, that's probably why he has to take them at face value because it's like, hi, Mr. Schreiber, it's really nice to meet you. Would you sign my book? And by the way, you know, that's not exactly... I mean, they, they he has to take them at face value because probably he doesn't have enough time to qualify them as... Uh, anything else, but I'm sure he gets the occasional weirdo uh, come up to him at these things as well. I'm sure he, uh, well, as much as they come up to us, they've he's got to be deluged with them. You do have a point, yes, sir. Hey, Jerry, you know what I kept thinking like the whole time during that interview? What's that? Where are we? What do you mean? We're the doing the the interview. I, I know that. I mean, but where are we? We're the... the hell are you drinking? Kool-Aid, I think. Tastes like poop, but the Crazy Straw is fun. Now give me a sip. Yeah, you, you can have the rest. Oh my god, I don't feel so... Is your head spinning because everything else is? Jeffrey Ritzman ever find their way out of Paratopia? Uh, probably not, but uh, why don't you tune in next week anyway? <laughs> and where?